Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. I don't know about you, but I've done some stupid things in life. Anybody else? Uh, one time, many years ago, working on the farm, a boss asked me to walk, across, walk out in pouring, pouring rain to, uh, to a tractor where I would be standing in a puddle of four inches of water, I mean, enough to go over the top of my boots, and to jumpstart a tractor. So my boss looks at me, and, and he's standing in the dry barn saying, okay, I want you to plug, I, I'll plug the cord in when you get out there. I want you to get everything set up on the battery, everything hooked up, and, and, then, uh, and I want you to stand there with this metal wrench, and because uh, the starter also doesn't work, so once I get the jump start going, uh, I'm going to have you arc the starter to make it start. And then he says, oh, by the way, I think the extension cord has a short in it, so if you start to light up, I'm going to quick pull it. And uh, so two dumb things there. I mean, standing in, you know, four inches of water with a broken electrical cord is one dumb thing, and then st- trying to arc uh, arc a starter with a metal wrench and ground perfectly grounded in a puddle is another dumb thing. So I knew it was dumb, but my boss asked me to do it. So I said yes, and I did it. The minute he put the power in the wall, I felt like an electric chair was warming up under me. And I started to shake, and he saw me shake. He pulled it before I fell down in the puddle. And I never got to find out what it would feel like to arc the starter standing in a well-grounded puddle. I don't know if I want to go back and do that someday. I don't know about what motivates you to do stupid stuff. Uh, we can be motivated by many things. We could be motivated by trying to please somebody like I was with my boss. We can be motivated by trying to look good, by trying to look brave. We can be motivated by the need for adrenaline or adventure to avoid boredom. I suspect we've all done stupid stuff from various motivations throughout our life. But some of the stupid stuff we do is innocuous. It's just funny, and at least after the fact, it's funny. Uh, that, that guy, he, he passed away last year, but two years ago I saw him, that boss, and he actually apologized to me 30 years later for that specific event. Uh, but some of the stupid stuff we do is, is just honestly fa- falling to temptation resulting in terrible consequences. I've watched marriages and I've watched people's faith fall apart because of stupid stuff they did. I've watched addictions begin and DUIs and and long-term consequence type things happen from just doing something stupid in a moment. A friend of mine actually uh, made a mistake as well one year, many years ago in a one-night stand, and she ended up getting an STD that was the cause of the cancer that she died from, leaving behind a husband and three small kids. You know, stupid stuff can be just that. It can just be stupid stuff. But stupid stuff all too often in life is falling to temptation, succumbing to it, and reaping some painful consequences in our lives. So we're in week three out of four in our No No Shortcut series where we're looking at the temptations of Jesus. God's Spirit doesn't cause temptation, but our world is full of it. And so God, in His wisdom, uses that to try to do good work in us. And temptation presents an opportunity for us to become complete, healthy, and whole because in temptation, when we face it, it tends to expose our weak areas and God wants to meet us in those areas and make them strong for us 
so that we can be strong and see the life that we really want to have. So one of the invitations of this series is for us to look at temptation just a little bit differently. I mean, sure, we want to get free of it. That's really the goal we want in life. And all that. that's, that's a given. But in the midst of it, God is inviting us to be curious as to how he is going to become bigger to us and be there with us and how he's going to make us stronger as we go through it and we overcome it. We've also been exploring in this series every time about how the answers to three questions are at the core of almost every temptation we face. Am I really forgiven? Or is God punishing me? Is God really going to work on my behalf? Am I really who God says I am? And am I worth what God says I'm worth? And see, what we believe about the answers to those questions determines, uh, determines a lot for us. It's really critical because behavior always follows belief in our life, even if that belief isn't true. Our behavior will still follow it. Let me just give you a quick uh, big picture cultural example. Uh, What we believe is the highest value in life is really important. It changes things greatly. Today in our culture in America, a major portion of our culture believes the value of personal choice is the highest value, above that of of love and of truth even. We see it in the social and political debate. We see how it affects how we think about sexuality in our culture and and, and sex and marriage and jobs and abortion and health care rights and immigration and law enforcement and socioeconomic disparity. You see this argument, this value in every one of those arguments. Judges 17 actually captures this culture where choice is is a higher value than love and truth when it says, in those days, everyone did as they saw fit. I mean, we often live life in America today saying, I know what God says, but I want to I do this. This is really better for me. What is right for me is right for me. It may not be right for others, but, but it's right for me, right? That's what we say. It's the right to choose over love and truth is what we're actually saying when we say that. Today, our culture applauds that value choice as intelligent, as enlightened, as progressive, But it is neither progressive nor enlightened or new. The value as a priority is over 3,000 years old. In fact, it was written about a people who today we would look back on them and say they were rather uneducated and barbaric. So in reality, our progressive enlightened culture is really just on par with in good company with a bunch of barbarians. In those days, everyone did as they saw fit, this text says. Why? Well, the part that I ellipsed out of that tells us why. It's because the people had no guiding or restraining leadership in their life. And if you take that a step further, God wasn't their king. They didn't trust God or his word. They trusted their choice more than his. So even though God is crystal clear in Scripture on who he is, and what truth is in almost every moral, social, and ethical circumstance we will face in life, We live with these competing voices and these competing influences that tempt us to believe there's another way that is better than God's way to be secure, wanted, comfortable, happy, successful, peaceful, joyful, to have the good life. So we take shortcuts. But if we decide to do it differently than God says is true, in the end we end up with a life that isn't true and isn't really life. In today's text, we're going to see how Satan tempts Jesus to do something stupid. 
And it would be really easy for us to think, well, I'm never going to do something stupid like that. But I think as we look underneath what's going on here, we're going to see that actually every single one of us falls prey and, and faces this temptation regularly in our lives. So Jesus' second temptation during his 40 days, at the end of his 40 days in fasting in the wilderness, is found in Matthew 4, and it says this. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now understand, this pinnacle of the temple is not like the roof of your house. It's not like jumping off the roof. This is like, this is like half a football field high, kind of certain death kind of high if you jump off. Can we say stupid? So Satan goes on and quotes the scripture to Jesus. He says, For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So the surface temptation in life for Jesus and, and for us coming out of this is if you jump, even if it's stupid, God will protect you. Satan is quoting Psalm 91, which is written to anyone who puts their trust in following God. And the psalm says that no matter what the temptations and trials you face are in life, you can rest in the knowledge that God is going to be with you and God is going to bring you through whatever you're facing. But Satan is taking this scripture out of context. The context says, do whatever, it doesn't, it doesn't say, do whatever you want and God will protect you. Prove how much faith you have and do something crazy and expect God to protect you. This is actually presumption, not faith, that's being tempted here. See, but, but it's a little more deep than that. Jesus is destined to be great. And Satan knows that. Satan is actually tempting Jesus to take a shortcut to his destiny. Wow, Jesus, if you, if you jump off this pinnacle and in front of all these people, what will they think? They'll think you're amazing and awesome and you'll get where you want to be in terms of fame and influence much quicker. Just do this. And haven't we done that in life sometimes? Haven't we taken shortcuts at times in life that were, in the end, when we look back, they were kind of stupid to get to someplace faster? I mean, have you ever thought, I really am destined to be rich. God wants me to be rich. And then you do something really stupid to try to get there quickly instead of getting there wisely. And we do that in so many other areas of our life. Satan is tempting Jesus, saying, Jesus, you have great faith. So do something great, something spectacular. And God will catch you and your reputation will be established right away. But jumping off a 50-yard high roof is, is just stupid. And we tend in life, when we do this, we succumb to this. We get harmed so much in life because we do stuff that the Bible is really quite clear on, but we breach those commands about relationships, and then we wonder, why is there so much hurt and disappointment in my life? We ignore His commands around finances, and we wonder why we don't have peace in that area of our lives. We often just do things we want to do in life and we expect God to cover it because God is merciful, right? He's loving, right? All this points to a deeper temptation, which is to make the Bible say what we want it to say so we can do what we want to do. Taking, taking things like Satan did here with Jesus out of, out of context in the Bible to say what we want it to say. And this, is, this temptation is really easy for us because there's, there are hard things in Scripture. There are hard things to understand. And it's easy to just choose what feels right, what feels good, what feels easy or best or whatever in scripture, instead of what Scripture actually says. And then when life falls apart and we get bitten by it and we get hurt and we get divorced and bankrupt and depressed and disillusioned, then we say to God, I thought you'd take care of me. 
See, Jesus responds to Satan's temptation by quoting Scripture, quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, and it really reveals the whole truth. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, Satan's temptation is to be presumptuous and take charge, take initiative, and expect God to mop up for you at the end. And Jesus says, no, I follow God. I don't test God by jumping out in front of him or by demanding he do what I want to do when I want him to do it and the way I want him to do it. But Psalm 91, in context, actually says something different than what Satan quotes. He says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, and I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And it ends in saying, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him, because he knows my name. And when that person calls to me and I, I will answer him, I will be with him in trouble, I will rescue him and honor him. You see, Psalm 91 in context says the one who trusts God, who submits wholly to him in his ways, who trusts the truth, the truth of Scripture, God will answer them. And show them his salvation and all the wonderful promises that Scripture offers us will become, gradually become a reality in our lives. See, the whole truth sets us free. But partial truth, it leaves us in corruption and pain and doing stupid things in life. See, no matter how much we believe our partial truth is truth, it doesn't change what really is true. Choosing to believe how we want to a certain degree can rid us of a sense of guilt of not measuring up to what we know God's ways are. But the truth is still the truth, and in the end, it doesn't change the outcome or the consequences. See, one of the statements I often hear when it comes to the Bible is, oh, there are lots of ways to interpret that. Really? No. No. In essentially all the moral, identity, ethical matters, the Bible is crystal clear. There are, multiple, there, there are not multiple ways to interpret it. Now, certainly the clarity of Scripture challenges us. It can, it can make it uncomfortable for us with a challenge, and in some ways it can be easier, at least initially, to not follow Scripture, but the easy path will lead us to more disappointment and regret, and the hard path will lead us to the lasting, enduring fulfillment we're looking for in life. See, God's instructions on marriage, sexuality, finances, what is loving and honorable, what is unloving and what is dishonorable, are really, really clear in Scripture. See, in our culture, though, our culture of choice, we argue that the desires dictate truth. Our desires dictate truth. Whatever we think we desire, that's what must be true. That must, must be our identity. That must be who we are. Not our Creator God's statements about what is true. But the first temptation of Jesus, if you're here last week that we addressed, says that never let your hunger, never let your desires, your needs define truth. Instead, let God's truth, His Scripture define truth, and then your desires and needs will be met in a lasting kind of goodness from him. Now, I know that sounds trite, it sounds easy, but, but trust me, it's not, and we know that. Allowing truth to shape our desires rather than desires to say, shape truth, truth shaping our desires is a whole lot harder. It's one of the hardest things we'll do in life is to allow that to happen. The second temptation says don't let, take Scripture out of context and pick and choose Scripture to make it say something that it doesn't just do what you want to do. 
And we do that in a lot of ways. So I'll give you a couple examples, but we'll start with one. So we do that in regard to money and specifically tithing. Tithing is God's command that we give 10% of our income back to God's work through the church. It's real clear in Scripture. You can't get around it without seeing it clearly. The Bible teaches us we tithe for a couple motivations. Really, the purpose is a couple motivations. It is an act of gratefulness, showing God how thankful we are, how generously he's provided for us. It is an act of worship that we trust God as our provider and our security more than we trust ourselves and our money and our bank accounts. And by the way, God promises all throughout Scripture, if we do this practice, He will enrich our lives. Now, that doesn't guarantee that you'll become financially rich according to whatever definition you have, but but there will definitely be more peace and more joy, more fulfillment in your life. And because the habit of tithing focuses us on God's priorities and His generosity and, and is a regular reminder to us of His leadership of that area of our life, tithing is designed to also have the effect of restraint in us our natural tendency towards greed and avarice. And so because of that, I can almost guarantee that everybody who ties will be in the end richer financially than you would have been without doing it because it restrains your desires that get you in trouble financially. Yet this is one of the most common areas people look for ways to argue half-truths on and and to justify what they want to do instead of what God asks. And that argument almost always sounds or begins like this. It says the New Testament doesn't require tithing anymore. Jesus did away with that requirement. And the verses most often commonly cited for that are Paul's statements where Paul says, you know, giving should not be from compulsion. It should be from a cheerful, joyful heart. And that's true scripture. But it's only part of the truth. The argument then says, so generosity is defined by a joyful heart in the New, in the New Testament, not tithing. And that's, that's, again, not completely true. There's a portion of that that is, is true in God's intent. The argument extends from there to Matthew 23, where Jesus is confronting the condemning hypocrisy of the religious leaders, saying, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. So in other words, he's saying, man, you guys, you guys tithe so much, you're just insane. I mean, you tithe your dust in your house is basically what he's saying. Ridiculous minutia you go to to be in alignment with this command. He says, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. And most who try to assert the New Testament doesn't ask us to tithe look at this and say, well, because Jesus is confronting the legalism of the religious, of the religious leaders, he's also saying that tithing is part of that legalism and therefore we don't have to do it. But, but, but Jesus clearly says, you should have practiced the latter tithing without neglecting the former, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And folks, the Greek here is plain and simple. There's nothing lost in translation. There's no hard words or uncertain words to translate here. Jesus is affirming tithing. But he says, don't just do it to be self-righteous without also living the more important matters of how you love and care for people and treat people. You aren't buying favor with God by tithing. Yet tithing is critical, Jesus says. You should practice it. There's a struggle in there for us, isn't it? We work so hard for the money. 
Money seems to never go far enough for us. We have so many desires for it and what, what, that, what, that, what that desires, how those desires for more money can supply our dream for life and supply our needs. And temptation and finances is such a big deal, not just about tithing and giving, but, but even about how we spend. We're tempted to spend and get ourselves into trouble because we spend it to fulfill needs and we don't even really have it, but we just get driven to meet that need and so we do it and, rather than trusting God's Word to meet those needs in, in the way God wants to meet them. See, but when we're tempted not to tithe, it takes us right back to the three questions of temptation we've been dealing with out throughout this series. Am I really forgiven or is God punishing me? Is God really going to work on my behalf? Am I really, am I really who God says I am and worth what God says I'm worth? And to fall to the temptation to not tithe means that we are answering questions two and three with a resounding no. God the one who made me and all that exists, who gives me everything, I don't trust you to work on my behalf, to provide enough for me, to have what I really need and want in life and still tithe and do what you say. God, I'm obviously not worth what you say I'm worth because if I was, I'd have more. I'd be able to afford the things I want for my kids, the vacations I really want to take, the nicer car, the nice, whatever it is. I can't tithe and have those things I deserve as well, so I can't trust God with my finances because clearly I am not worth what God says I'm worth or I'd have more. That's what we're saying. Our lack of tithing is also likely indicates our answer to the first question is no as well. See, the argument for the, for the New Testament not affirming tithing almost always comes from people who are not tithing trying to justify the fact of what they're giving is good enough and I'm okay and I don't really have to pay attention to this command. And so they think if I can, if I can just give joyfully $100 then, and that's all I can be joyful about, then I don't need to give more. That's all God asks. But listen, what that argument really says in the end is because of the great, outrageously generous grace of God and Jesus' death and resurrection, my generous, grateful response to this greatest of all gifts that God has given us is that now I am free to be less generous and less grateful. Which means you don't really trust and don't really get the forgiveness God has given you. Because if you did understand the forgiveness and how awesome the gift of forgiveness and relationship God gives you, you'd realize that God is the most generous, perfectly thoughtful, caring person in the universe. And therefore, you would realize that you serve an awesomely good, outrageously generous God who you could never outgive. And you'd want to see how generous you could become in this life rather than how little you could give and still be joyful. You'd want to be laying up treasure in heaven instead of laying up treasure here on earth. 10% would be the starting place, not the end goal for us in our giving. See, falling to temptation is to not tithe means we don't really trust God. Now, for those of you who are in desperate situations due to medical things or big out-of-control things in your life and your finances, those of you who are retired on a very fixed income, those of you who are married and your spouse will not allow timing, the tithing, grace and peace to you. Just grace and peace to you. 
And if you put yourself in a hole in life because of some bad decisions or difficult decisions in life and you need time to climb out of that hole, then grace and peace to you as you're climbing out of that goal, seeking to learn to be obedient to God. To God. But for the majority, a lack of tithing is a lack of trust in God and an indication that he is not really yet Lord of your life in that area. Now, I know that sounds strong, but can we just be honest? When we follow Jesus, we declare we're going to follow him. But that journey, the rest of our life, is about learning to make him Lord over every area of our life. Because when we make that initial declaration, he's not. So you're not alone if, you, if you're not str- trusting God in your finances right now, he's not Lord of that area. You're not any different because some of us trust God in, his, in the finances and, and make him Lord there, but we don't trust him in other areas. And others of us trust him in other areas, but we, don't, we haven't allowed him to be Lord and leader over our finances yet. That is just the path of growth that every single one of us is on our entire life as followers of Jesus. And we just can't escape it. The Lordship journey is the primary journey of us growing in faith. And and when you look at it biblically, God is so amazingly patient and gracious with our growth in that area. But let's not knowingly, stupidly use sinful choices to test God's patience where we don't need to. He's amazingly gracious. But to fall prey to Satan's temptation of Jesus is to willfully, stupidly choose to do something we know is against God's ways and still expect God to rescue us before we hit the stone pavement below. God is incredibly patient beyond any measure any of us would ever have in our own lives as somebody else, but His patience is not unending either. Now, for those of you who carry that baggage of thinking that preachers are all about money-grubbing and all that kind of stuff. If you think I'm the money-grubbing preacher, then, then I want you to tithe the Vineyard Columbus or One Church or Westerville Christian or any of the other great churches around us. But please, respond to God's truth in your finances and see the blessing God brings to your lives. Whether, whether you ever become as financially rich as you hope to be or not, there will be blessing beyond you can, whatever you can imagine if you will allow Him to be Lord of your life in this area. But there's still a deeper point in Jesus' temptation that we want to get at. So let's get at, get at it this way. I want to look at one of the most quoted Bible verses by our culture, and half our culture doesn't even know they're quoting the Bible. It's a statement made by Jesus that is completely taken out of context and made into something that actually results in thwarting uh, truth and propping up sin, even though it's stated as such a noble statement. It's a verse we love to throw in people's faces when they're trying to tell us we're doing something wrong. And we say, do not judge or you too will be judged. Who are you to judge me? Good Christians don't judge. Now, what does that really mean there? What is Jesus trying to get across to us? In a sense, he's starting out with this meaning of, of, if I were to say it this way, in the court of Ross, I think you are doing wrong and you are condemnable, you are a worthless scoundrel and you deserve all the punishment and that's what I think and that's where I end my thinking about you. But Jesus goes on to clarify what he's actually getting at. He says, for in the same way you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, are, you, are, the, are those the rules you really want to live by? 
Because if you want to judge others and how they are not living up to God's moral standards and love in, in their lives, be careful because you are going to be asking God to judge you in the same manner. And so we often say that Jesus says, don't judge others. And we use that for all it's worth, especially when somebody is telling us we're doing something wrong. And then for many, we add to that our cultural God of choice, and we say, well, what I choose to be true is true for me, and what you choose to be true is true for you, so don't judge me. And that's not the point Jesus is isolating or even making in this text. He's making actually a very specific relational point, not a point about whether we talk about or not talk about or whether we point out the truth or error in other people's lives. To show you that, Jesus actually immediately goes into this really profound short story. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye, plank face? How, do you, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when at the same time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So this isn't about not talking about something that is right or wrong in a friend's life. The ending statement actually affirms that where Jesus is trying to take us is to that point where we can talk about what's right and wrong and invite people out of being wrong and destructive things in their life. That's when he says, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus' intent is to take us to the point we have those conversations. This is actually more about who we are and how we go about pointing out wrong in someone else. Jesus says to us, first pay attention to your own stuff so that you don't come into the conversation as someone who is superior, but rather you come with a compassionate, identifying humility. But our culture even makes that into a half-truth. Have you ever heard this one? Have you ever heard somebody say, hey, when you deal with your own stuff, then you could talk to me about mine, so don't judge me. We even make a half-truth out of that. That is also not what Jesus is saying either. The hypocrisy Jesus is isolating to remove from our lives is the hypocrisy that leads to us pointing out untruth or wrong in other people's lives as a way of comparing and making ourselves feel better about ourselves. Jesus is actually confronting pride and how blind we can become to our own stuff and how easily we can get into this thing of comparing and condemning others just to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. See, if you were to outline actually some of Paul's main points in Romans, he's actually summarizing in some of his main points the same thing that Jesus is saying here. In Romans 3, we see the the context. Paul is addressing this Jewish sense that they were better than everybody else because God chose them. Now, we know that they constantly forgot that God chose them for the purpose of using them so that everybody would come to know him and be part of that chosen family of his, but they forget that. and So there's this residing arrogance and judgment among the Jews that Paul, who himself was raised as a heavyweight Jew, understands, and he's addressing it. And he says this. He says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
There is no difference between any two human beings. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short. We can't save ourselves by our own efforts. There is no perfect marriage. There is nobody who is perfectly self-controlled. Everyone is selfish at some level. No one has always told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We all deceive ourselves and others all too often. And then Paul goes on in another major statement in Romans 5. He says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. In other words, God laid out the good moral law, defining the way to true abundant life, but God knew that we we would reject it all the more. And isn't that the truth we all recognize? You tell somebody not to do something and they want to do it all the more? Why? Because there's pride and rebellion inside our hearts. We want to do things our way. We want to be God and determine what is right rather than submit to God and what He says is right. So God knew we couldn't save ourselves from our sin. He also knew that by us knowing the law, our awareness of sin and sin itself would increase. But He doesn't leave it there. The text goes on. He says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In the face of greater awareness of sin and increased sin, grace also increased. Why? Because God loves us so much. God is so very patient and loving. God sees sin drawing us into sin and selfishness and destruction. So he gives us the law, pointing us to that which is good. But we turn around and say to God, that's not really good. What you say is really wrong. In fact, sometimes we label it as evil and we actually malign the very character of God himself in our picking and choosing what we want to believe from the Bible. See, yet God's grace and patience goes so far that even in the face of that personal attack on him and telling him he's evil rather than good, Jesus comes to save us, to die on the cross to take our penalty. That is mind-blowing grace and patience and generosity and love. And how do we receive that forgiving love in our lives? It's a gift. Paul tells us in Romans 3.24, Ephesians 2.8, we can't earn it. Our salvation has nothing to do with our works. It is a gift of grace from God that we receive. And therefore, whether you are a successful executive who everybody looks to as a role model and they want to be like you, or whether you you are an addict on the street, we are all on the same level before God. We have no right to condemn anyone or see anyone as different or worse of a sinner than we are. And yet, the Bible commands us in other places to judge, to urgently point out the truth, to lovingly pursue friends who are falling short in sin and doing damage to themselves and to others around them. And if we don't confront our friends, the Bible teaches us with untruth that is controlling their lives, the Bible tells us we are actually not loving if we don't judge and do it in that way. I mean, think about it. Who sees a bus at night coming down a road and you got a friend who's stupid sleeping in the middle of the road and you just stand there and watch without doing anything and let him get run over? That's not love. But we point out what is wrong and right from a different heart and a different place. We start by identifying 
with the other person, with a heart that says, I recognize that while they have a speck of sawdust in their life, I'm sitting here as plank face. So I can't come in there condemningly. I can only come in compassionately and tenderhearted because I know how much damage sin has done in my life and I see the damage in their life and I am so weak and they're so weak and so I come to them just grateful for God's grace and I lock arms with them and I help them become the best version of who God created them to be. See, in other words, we cultivate relationships of accountability in our life where accountability doesn't become you're wrong, you need to do right, but a locking arms and accountability to pursue the best in each other together as trusted friends. And that does mean we are going to make judgments about truth and we are going to talk about when somebody is doing something wrong, but we're going to believe the best in the other person at all times without ignoring the reality of what's right and wrong. Because we recognize that grace and tr- without truth is not grace and truth without grace is not truth. The two can never ever be separated. We don't actually even know grace and experience it in our lives until we come to terms with what we've done wrong and what we need to do right. If we don't know truth, then we don't have grace. The best we have is self-denial, self-deception, or ignorance going on in our lives. And we don't receive truth unless it comes with the compassion and love of Jesus through us to another person. I know this is going to be really hard to walk out. Where's that line? We had a wonderful illustration this last week in Dallas uh, where the brother of a murdered man spoke to a convicted, spoke, uh, got to speak to the convicted murderer. And we're going to show that on here. But Facebook people watching, you won't be able to see this. We don't have permission to stream it. So you'll just hear the audio. Let's look at the screens. I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did. But I see, I, I, personally want the best for you and I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone but I don't even want you to go to jail I want the best for you because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do and the best would be give your life to Christ. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. I get that there's a lot of different controversy that people have stirred up around that in the media and stuff, but but honestly, can we just see it for what it is? It's the simplicity of his faith in Jesus, demonstrating a good attempt at the balance between truth and grace. I mean, the truth, the trial is done. The judgment is made. The consequences of what happened is there. And then there's this gracious relational offer of redemption. 
that goes on. Jesus gives us a great inspiring example as on many occasions. One of them is in in John 8. We see the religious leaders stir up a mob and drag this half-naked woman and throw him before Jesus' feet because she was caught in adultery. And adultery is a clear sin in the Bible. No, No debate, no disputes, no lack of clarity. The religious leaders set up a dilemma for Jesus, asking him, well, what should we do with her? And if Jesus says, well, she deserves to be punished, then the, then the crowds are going to go, well, he's not as merciful and compassionate as I thought he was. If Jesus says, no big deal, and let her off, then they're going to say, well, he doesn't trust Scripture. He's not really a man of God. No matter what Jesus says, he's going to have at least half the audience angry at him. And instead, Jesus answers, let any one of you plank-faced people who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he lets that sink in. And the stones begin to drop and everyone walks away. And this is one of the most amazing, inspiring acts of grace and love I think we could ever see in all of human history. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes further. When he and the woman are alone with his disciples, Jesus stands up, he looks her in the eye, and he says, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, No one, sir. I always want to say that with a British accent. It just sounds better to say no one, sir, with a British accent. And he says, Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. No condemnation, but truth. Leave your life of sin. We are called to judge truth, to distinguish truth. We are called to love each other enough that we encourage each other to live in the truth and we challenge when people are caught in things that are not true. And Jesus, perfect, the perfect sinless one, models this for us. And then we as fellow sinners are called to do it knowing we are as sinful as the person we're challenging. And so we are compassionate. We come alongside. We never condemn. We understand how truth, the whole truth, and grace work together in our lives with the power of the Holy Spirit. And that makes us living out grace and truth possible. So what actions can we take today to to walk away and take some steps towards living this out more? Where have you made Scripture say what you want it to say? You probably know the area in order to justify your own actions. Well, as we take communion, tell God right now, I'm sorry, forgive me for doing that, and commit to walking on that path, pursuing that truth of God in your life. Maybe another question. Where do you need to find this balance of grace and truth in your life or in your relationships right now? Find a faithful Christian friend and tell them what you're struggling with, how you're trying to figure out how to walk this out in your life personally or in truth and grace in a relationship that's difficult with another person right now. And give that permission, give permission to that friend to speak into your life and hold you accountable, to encourage you to stay true to walking out truth and grace even when it's difficult. Communion is something that Jesus instituted. He asks us to celebrate it on a regular basis because I think he does it for a purpose. It's this time when we come face to face with the truth of our sin. And we confess that sin with Jesus and we receive his forgiveness and we look to him to lead us into the freedom beyond it. And we remember how he walked among us, how he became an example for us, how he did good, how he did healing, and how he suffered so well and in a way that we would be able to have a model of how to get through difficulty, how he paid the penalty for us, and we can, we can receive the love of God and the security 
of right eternal relationship with him, but also communion is really about us being able to extend that same love, that same grace, that same truth and grace to other people. It is such a picture of not only God toward us, but how he wants us to live in relationship with another. So as we continue to worship, would you just come and worship and receive communion and just expect the presence of God to come and meet you wherever you're at right now. Come on. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.